Well, good morning again. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, so we're, we're going to be looking to Easter, preparing for Easter. Uh, as you know, we have things like Christmas and Easter to draw our hearts back to, to what matters. And so today, rather than uh, look so much at the, the triumphal entry, uh, you know, of Palm Sunday, we're going to take a look at Mark 15. If you can turn there in your Bibles, it's, the verses aren't in your notes. If you can turn there in your Bibles, Mark 15. We're going to look at where Jesus was headed uh, on Palm Sunday, where he was going on that triumphal entry. What, what was the point? And that is the cross. That is the cross. I'm, I'm very aware, uh, as someone you know, who's, who's been in church my whole life and, and grown up around these things, that, that the cross and the crucifixion, th- these are things that if you've been in church for any amount of time, you, you know about. And so, you know, I, I'm tempted to, to find some cool passage to, you know, make it more interesting for you. But I was just drawn back as I, as I looked um, through God's Word and prayed about what to st- uh, study today, that we should just look at the crucifixion. Because, here, here's why, if you don't get this, none, el- none of it else matters. You can read and study all the epistles. You can celebrate Christmas even, right? The, the incarnation. But without understanding the cross, what took place there, it doesn't matter. It might make you good at Bible jeopardy, but that won't get you very far. And so today, we're going to take another look at the cross. And I, it has been my prayer, knowing that these are familiar things, that God would help you to hear these things with a soft and receptive heart that would just be strengthened. And if you've never heard this, this stuff before, this, this is amazing. This is why we meet together uh, as a church. And so I, I invite you to, to listen closely and hear what the gospel really is and what it revolves around. So we're going to be looking through uh, Mark's gospel account of the crucifixion. And I want to say this. Uh, as I studied, uh, you might know this, Mark— is, is the most abbreviated of the Gospels. It's, it's a very quick account. He gives a very short account. And so even in the, the crucifixion, he gives a complete account of the crucifixion, but certainly not a comprehensive one, okay? So there are going to be many things that, that as I speak and study, you might say, well, what about uh, these things that happened? What about this that happened? We know it's there, but Mark, we're we're studying Mark today. (laughs) God inspired Mark to write this shorter account, and so I believe that we can really gain some good things. I just want you to be aware of that, though. I would highly recommend that you read through all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of the crucifixion and and resurrection. You might even find a good gospel harmony where they've already combined all the stories together so that it's a little more coherent Uh, But again, Mark does give a complete picture, although not comprehensive. So I'm going to read to you Mark chapter 15, the the entirety of it, verses 1 through 47. And uh, Jesus has already been been, uh, betrayed by Judas and and arrested, and um, that's where we come here in, in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. 
And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him mixed wine with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him said, facing him, saw in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, 
among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we learn so many things here at church and as we, we study our Bible in our homes. And, but God, we, we understand that none of it matters if we don't understand what happened at the cross of Calvary nearly 2,000 years ago. So God, as we study today, would you open our eyes to what we maybe haven't seen before? God, would you touch our hearts with truths that have maybe lost their, their burning force in our lives? God, let us see Jesus more clearly. Let us understand his work. God, let us see your love on display today. God, only you can do this work on our hearts. So I ask it in your son's name. Amen. Now, from just that quick reading of, of Mark 15, we understand that, that Jesus, you know, he has that, that triumphal entry uh, back several chapters ago, but we see here in 15 that he is nailed to a cross, crucified, and dies. But a, a question comes for me, how did he get there? How did Jesus even end up on the cross? And so what I want to do, we did that quick reading of Mark 15. I want to slow down and take a, a little more time to, to go in depth and see what's really going on here. So we're going to start by looking at number one in your notes, the path to the cross. The path to the cross. How did he get there? Now there's a lot we could say about how Jesus got to the cross. You could honestly look at Genesis 3 and, and see <laughs> that this plan was in place. Uh, but, but Jesus he had taken on flesh, and he had been doing his ministry, his public ministry, for about three years. He'd been going around teaching and doing miracles and healing and casting out demons and, and all these amazing things. And Jesus, we see, had lived a sinless life in every way. That should be astounding, just an astounding fact. Uh, a sinless life in every way. That means he, he kept the law of Israel, he kept the moral codes, and most importantly, he kept the law of God flawlessly, without exception. Then here in this final week, we have Palm Sunday, which uh, would have been today, with his triumphal uh, entry. He, he comes into Jerusalem, and people are saying this to him. This is in chapter 11 of Mark, but you don't have to turn there. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. But then, as Jesus 
final week continued, the, the religious elites of Israel became very annoyed and envious of Jesus. See, they didn't like all the attention he was getting. They didn't like the way that he was shaking up the system of, of uh, vain traditions that they had put in place. And so they hated Jesus. They hated him. So how did Jesus go from people shouting Hosanna in chapter 11 to seeing him, people yell crucify him and him nailed to a cross here in chapter 15? Well, a good question then for the, the path to the cross would be who put him there? Who, who was it that is responsible for being, Jesus being crucified? Who brought charges against him? Who condemned him? Who was responsible for the Son of God, Jesus, being put to death on a cross? Well, as we look at, at Mark 15, what we can start with the most obvious group of people here that's listed. Uh, again, the night before Judas had betrayed him, Jesus had been arrested, and there had even been kind of a mock trial the night before. But as we see here in chapter 15, verse 1, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. I'm going to pause there. That is the Sanhedrin, uh, th this, this group, the Sanhedrin. It would be 71 uh, of these religious elites, 70 plus the, the high priest. And they represented the Jewish people. It would be like our government today. They, they represent us. Anyway, okay, I'll move on. So that's the Sanhedrin. And it goes on to say, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So we first see the Jews as this responsible party for the crucifixion of Jesus. It says they, they delivered him over to Pilate. That might sound odd to us. You know, they hate him. They, they want him to die. They actually said that in uh, chapter 14, verse 64. Uh, they all condemned him as deserving of death. So why do they deliver him over to Pilate? Are they looking for a more fair trial than the one that they had given him? No, that's definitely not what they were doing. See, Israel was under the, the power of the empire of Rome. They, they were still considered a nation. They were still given some rights and some privileges, and they could even carry out justice to a point. They, they were not allowed to put people to death. They were not allowed to put people to death, so they had to hand him over to Pilate, who is the, the main Roman official there, so that he could kill Jesus. The Jews are sending Jesus to death. It goes on to say in, in verses 2 through 5, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so, which is another way of saying yes. Verse 3, and the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. We see again these chief priests in front of Pilate. They, they've brought him there, but rather than uh, just, you know, letting him figure things out, they're bringing all these charges against him. And Pilate's saying, Don't, don't you see all these charges that, that your people, the Jews, are bringing against you? The Jews. Again, in, in verses 6 through 14, we see their responsibility. Uh, verse 6, Now at the feast, this is uh, the Passover feast, which would happen the next day, he, that's Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. 
So this was kind of a gift to the Jews to kind of placate them a little bit. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Even Pilate could see this. But, verse 11, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas, the murderer, instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So we see here the first group of people that are responsible for the crucifixion of God the Son, Jesus, is God's very people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. These are the people of promise, that the apple of God's eye, who he had showered his love on, showered his provision over. You look at the, the, the history of Israel and all God had done for them, and they are now saying, crucify him. The Jews were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. They were a part of the path to the cross. But I want to say this, and I, I really do want to emphasize it. The Jews were not alone in this. The Jews were not alone in this. I, I, may, I want to say this strongly because there is, even in our day, a strong anti-Semitism that says, oh, the Jews killed Jesus, so now we can treat them however we want. We can kill them. You think of Nazi Germany. This is, this is what they used against them. And that sentiment still goes on today, but that is a bigoted, uh, um, <laughs> uninformed viewpoint because the, the, the Jews were not the only responsible party. Let's look next at Pilate and the Romans. We see in, in verse 15, Pilate's, you know, they, they brought him, sorry, they brought uh, Jesus to Pilate, and they're, they're saying all these things. He sees that he's innocent, but verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate sees that Jesus is innocent. They're bringing all these charges against him, but they're, they're not sticking. Uh, we, we see in other passages that they were, were even contradictory to one another, and it just didn't make sense. And so Pilate knows that. He sees that it was just the envy of the Jews, yet he still not only sends him to be crucified, but has him scourged first. That's, that's beaten. This, this, is, this is crazy that Pilate would do this. But in addition to just Pilate, there are more. We see the Roman soldiers in verses 24 through 25. We, we, they're in other places as well, but 24 through 25, it says, And they, the Roman soldiers, crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. This is basically what we see here. I could add in addition, uh, you see the crowds that the, that the Jewish leaders stirred up. You would have Jews and Gentiles alike all just, you know, okay, yes, we, 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 will, we will hate this guy. We will yell crucify him. We don't know what he did or anything. This is basically what we see here in Mark is everyone who is present, you know, apart from, you know, any maybe his followers that would have maybe been around, this is everyone yelling, crucify him. Everyone responsible for the crucifixion 
of Jesus. And I hate to say it, but if I were there 2,000 years ago, apart from God's grace, I would have been yelling, crucify him. Apart from God's grace, no matter you know, what you might think of yourself, apart from God's grace, if you were there 2,000 years ago, you would have been yelling, crucify him. You might have spit on him, mocked him. Everyone was responsible. The, these human agents, we see the Jews, we see the Romans, we see even the Gentiles that would have been mixed into the crowds responsible for Jesus' death. But there is one final party involved, and this is the most important. Yes, there were these human agents who, yes, they, they out of their own hearts, out of their own wills, their own wicked desires, had Jesus crucified, but there was one more agent, and that was God himself had Jesus crucified. God the Father was sending Jesus to the cross, and God the Son, Jesus, was willingly obeying his Father. This is uh, all really pretty obvious in chapter 14. If you, if you want to turn back, uh, you can. Just one chapter, if you, I don't know if you even have to. But verse uh, 17 of 14, it says there, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were Jesus came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. This didn't take Jesus by surprise. He knew that Judas was going to betray him later that night. Verse 22 through 25, it says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it broke, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given it to them, he said, or, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is inaugurating the Lord's Supper, what we've got right here in front of me. Jesus is inaugurating that, saying, My body is going to be broken. My blood is going to be poured out again. I'm sitting here drinking this wine with you guys. I will never drink it again until I drink it in the kingdom. He seems to know that it's coming pretty quick, you know. Uh, it seems like he might ha know what's going on. It seems like he might be in control of this path to the cross. We see uh, again in 27 20, and 28, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. He's talking to his disciples. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am, I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, Jesus had called himself the shepherd many times uh, in the Gospels before this point. He says, the shepherd, I am going to be struck down, and you're all going to scatter. Jesus knew he's going to be struck down. And then finally, in 14, we see Jesus praying in the Garden of, of, of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, all, the verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then Jesus tells his disciples in verse 42, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Sure sounds like Jesus is not the victim here. It sure sounds like he knows what's going on. It sure sounds like he could get away if he wanted to. 
we even see in chapter 15, the, the, the chapter we're studying today, verses 3 through 5, And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Of course Pilate is amazed. These chief priests, they're bringing these charges, these false accusations against him, and yet he doesn't even defend himself. Pilate's saying, hey, these guys are bringing charges against you. Don't you want to say something? You know, I'm the one who can have you put to death. Jesus doesn't answer. It doesn't sound like he's trying to get out of this crucifixion there. Verses 29 and 30, after Jesus has already been nailed to the cross, it says, 15 th- 29, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, why would passerby say that? Aha, you who would destroy the temple, you know, and rebuild it in three days. What are they talking about? That's kind of a random thing to say, right? Well, what they're referring to is something that we actually see in John chapter 2. I'll read it for you. It might be helpful. John chapter 2, 18 through 22. It says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us doing these things? Verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus had even told this crowd who was asking him for a miracle, hey, you guys are going to destroy this temple, but I'm going to raise it up. They didn't know what he was talking about, you know, uh, but basically Jesus was saying, you guys want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You're going to kill me, but I'm going to bring myself back to life. That's what's going to happen. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. Even uh, in, in later scripture, after the crucifixion and resurrection has happened, you know, how did the, the, the Christians, the early Christians, view this? Did, who, who did they think put Jesus on the cross? Listen to this from Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. This is Peter preaching at, at Pentecost, just a short time after Jesus' death and resurrection. He says this, "'Men of Israel, hear these words.'" Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So yes, Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but guess what? He was delivered up according to the plan and definite, or so the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. <laughs> you guys were just following God's plan. You did it out of, out of your wicked hearts, but you're following God's plan. Acts 4, 22 through 20, or 23 through 28, Peter and John have been arrested for preaching the gospel. Then it says this, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, so this is a prayer, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, of, yeah, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There you see it. He says there, you have, uh, the, you have Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, all of them responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. But it says there, they're only doing whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And that's not to mention, by the way, uh, over 100 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. This did not take God by surprise. This did not take Jesus by surprise. He was not overpowered. He was not overcome. Yes, the people were really responsible for crucifying Jesus, but God had a plan. God was in control. Why does that matter? Why does that matter that Jesus willingly went to the cross, that he willingly gave up his life? Why does that matter? I've got two reasons, and they're, they're really big reasons to me. Number one, if, if, if Jesus went to the cross and was overpowered, that's probably not the God I want to serve, right? That's not, not the God I want to serve. But this shows us that he is in control. He was in control every moment of every day, every pain, every affliction that came upon Jesus, he allowed, he willingly went into. The second reason that this is important, if God was not in control, if Jesus was not in control, then this was murder. But if God was in control, if Jesus was in control, then this was a sacrifice. There's a big difference there. A lot of people have been murdered. This was a willing sacrifice, a life laid down. That's why it matters. So yes, the Jews, the Gentiles, the Romans, they were uh, responsible for this, for putting Jesus on the path to the cross, but it was really God sending his son and Jesus willingly obeying. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross Hebrews 12 says. So now we know the path to the cross and why it's important, who is responsible. But now we need to know what happened there. What, what actually happened on the cross and, and, and leading up to there. Number two in your notes, this is the pain of the cross. The pain of the cross. There are three parts of the pain of the cross. The first of them is the physical pain. The physical pain. That's pretty apparent here uh, in these verses, the physical pain. Uh, we see that even before we get to chapter 15, Jesus had already been beaten in chapter 14 of Mark. In, in, uh, in, in verse 15 of, of uh, Mark 15, we see that Pilate has Jesus scourged before sending him off to be crucified. You know, we might think, okay, he, he was you know, whipped and beaten. That, that sounds bad. We need to understand what a scourging is. 
I want you to understand the very real pain. I want to say this too. Sometimes we think of Jesus, uh, and we rightly so think of him as God, but we, we sometimes don't think that he was real flesh and blood like you and I, with real nerves and the ability to feel pain and anguish and grief. So think this is a real man, really willingly taking these things. So scourging, what is scourging? Scourging was a whip. I actually drew a picture of it on my notes here, but it was a whip with a handle with, with these tails coming off at these, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, tassels, I guess, uh, tassels of leather coming off of that handle. Then to the end of those tassels was tied, was embedded either bits of rock, metal, or, or bones, sharp bones. So you'd have this whip with the, these, these sharp bones on the end of the tassels, and so each time, I'm sorry if this is graphic, by the way, each time Jesus would be, be stretched out and they would whip him with that, those bones, those pieces of metal, those rocks would be embedded in his flesh so that when they pulled it out, it would tear his flesh. And they would do this over and over again. We're talking skin shredded, muscles shredded, veins and arteries shredded. This happened to our Savior. He was scourged. In verses 16 through 19 we read, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, that's a, a royal cloak to mock him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. I'll pause there for a moment. You might think of a little thorn bush you've got, you know, outside, or even rose thorns with these little spikes. From, from what we understand of, of the, the plants that, that um, were growing there, these thorns would have been several inches long. These were, were vines, almost, with these long thorns. They would have be, been very sharp and very stiff that was wrapped and intertwined in a, in a, a circle, making a crown, and then they forced it on his head, tearing these thorns into his forehead, and into his head. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. A reed would have been uh, very similar to like a bamboo stick. They're, they're taking that and, and striking, by the way. That, that is a, a continual thing over and over, striking him in the head with this reed as they spit on him. So he was scourged back in tatters, this crown of thorns forced on his head, being beat with a rod. Then, of course, verse 24, we see they crucified Jesus. I, I don't imagine I have to go into too much detail as to what a, a cross is that Jesus was crucified on. We, we see the image, we know the image uh, of two uh, you know, pieces of wood um, nailed together. But what they would do is they would spread the arms across and then they would take a, a nail, more like a railroad spike, and put it through either the hands or the wrists uh, in each arm. Then they would cross the feet and take another spike and drive it through the feet and into the, the wood there. And then they'd stand the cross up, and he would be hanging. Now, the, the nailing of these spikes through his, through his hands and through his feet would have been horrific, but what happens on the cross is what really makes the cross terrible. This is why it was invented as, as a form of torture and, and, and murder. 
is while you're hanging on the cross, hanging down by the arms, by the, by the wrists that, that are nailed there, it is actually asphyxiating you. It is, it is forcing the air out of your lungs while, while hanging like that. And so what that means is, in order to breathe, they had to either pull up with their arms that are nailed to the cross, pull up on those wounds to, to be able to take a breath, or they had to push up with their feet that were nailed to the cross in order to take each and every breath. To make this pain uh, even worse, remember that Jesus' back is in tatters at this point as he rubs it up and down on this cross. This is what our forsaken Savior was enduring on the cross. That's the physical pain. Next, we can look at the, the emotional pain. I told you there are three dimensions. The second dimension is the emotional pain, mockery and desertion. We think about how the people treated him. In, in verse 3, we see the chief priest accused him of many things. You know, I've got thick skin, but I don't like people falsely accusing me of stuff. That, that, that is hard emotionally. In verses 6 through 14, we see the crowd uh, choosing this convicted murderer over having Jesus released. Who had, he'd been doing miracles and healing them, yet they choose a murderer to release instead of him. In verse 15, we see that Pilate, this uh, Roman official, fears the crowds more than the Son of God. The crowds yell, crucify him. He's like, I don't think he did anything, but they keep yelling, and he gives in to them rather than letting go the Son of God. In verses 16 through 20, we, we saw the, the Roman soldiers putting that robe and crown of thorns on Jesus and beating him with a stick and spitting on him. They, they, they were mocking him, king of the Jews. Sure don't look like one to me. That, that's what they're, they're saying. And then in verse 27, we see that he's crucified between two common criminals. That was on purpose. They, they, they put them on either side. It says one on the left and one on the right. Mark didn't put that in there for no reason. It is to show that Jesus is counted among the thieves, among the murderers, among the sinners. sinners. He's counted as no better, no different. Then the crowds, verse uh, 29 through 32, it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, let the, Christ the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You think they'd have believed? <laughs> I don't think so. They'd already seen all these miracles. They hated him. And then it says this, Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Thieves, murderers, insurrectionists are mocking Jesus. Now we know that one of the two thieves on the cross did eventually uh, have a, a heart change as God you know, divinely intervened and he did trust in Christ, but at this point, <laughs> the people being crucified next to him are mocking him. What about Jesus' friends? His disciples, he traveled with them for three years, spent life with them. We're talking uh, an extended camping trip where you really get to know each other because lots of times they had nowhere to lay their head, right? He prayed with them, he'd worked with them, 
And yet, in uh, chapter 14, verse 50, we see they all fled. They all deserted him. We, we see uh, in, in the Gospel of John that, uh, that John did actually come back, and he was with um, Jesus' mother. But, but other than that, the disciples had fled. Peter, the disciple Peter, nicknamed the Rock, who is usually fearless and, and brash, had denied Jesus three times at this point, if you remember that. Jesus' nearest and dearest had deserted him, had denied him, while everyone else accused him, mocked him, scorned him, spit on him. I have no comparison for that emotionally, quite honestly. I, I'm a social person. I, I, I like people to like me. I like to like them. This would crush me, to, to, to have not only my enemies hate me, but my friends desert me. That's what happened to our Savior. As horrible as those things are, those were light and momentary compared to this next one. The spiritual pain. The third dimension. We have the physical, the emotional, and now the spiritual pain on the cross for Jesus. It says, verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, by the way, in, in their time, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So at the sixth hour, at noon, darkness came over the whole land. I'm talking darkness, not just an eclipse where you can still see everyone. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. It doesn't say it got cloudy. It says it got dark. Why darkness? at noon. What's that all about? Now, certainly it would have uh, probably terrified the people who had just crucified this guy when it gets dark at the, the height of the day, but that wasn't the point at all. It wasn't to scare anyone. Listen to this. We need to get this. In the Old and New Testament, I don't have time to go through all the passages, but in the Old and New Testament, supernatural darkness was always a symbol for God's judgment coming. You think about in the end times, the sun will be blotted out. That's talking about God's judgment coming. So in, at this time, it says at noon, the darkness was over the whole land. So that's God's judgment is coming for who? Is it coming for the Jews? Is it coming for Pilate? Is it coming for the Romans or the Gentiles? Who's it coming for? Well, we know it was coming for none of them. God's judgment was coming for God the Son, Jesus, hanging there on the cross. God's judgment was to be poured out on Jesus. The spiritual pain and agony of the wrath of the, what sinners deserve poured out on him. Now remember, Jesus was God. He, he became man and lived a perfect and sinless life, yet he was tasting, bearing the full weight, the full burden of the wrath of God for sinners, for those who had rebelled against him. We need to understand here, I think, that this was not 
a, a, a numbed-down version of God's judgment on Jesus. You might think, well, maybe God, you know, was nice to the way he poured it out on Jesus. God is perfectly just, okay? Perfectly just. That means the punishment fits the crime every single time. The wages of sin is death, the spiritual death, the wrath of God. Uh, Romans tells us that we're storing up wrath for the day, uh, for the day of judgment. And that judgment is now being poured out on Jesus. So the eternal punishment that I deserve, multiplied by everyone else who would trust in Jesus, all mixed together in this cup of wrath, poured out on Jesus in full force on the eternal God. He was able to take this eternal punishment in this three-hour span because he's an eternal God. He felt that punishment, that pain, that agony that we deserved. He endured it right there on the cross not numbed down, not, not, not made any easier for him. The punishment fit the crime. He was sinless, but our sin put on him. We see even in verse 34, Jesus cries out the very real statement and says this with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamna sabachthani, that's Aramaic, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22 there, but Jesus, God the Son, really was forsaken by God the Father there on the cross. For those three hours, while he endured that, that judgment, that darkness, he really was forsaken. This unimaginable pain. Eternities of judgment poured out on Jesus you know, some people may ask, how could God allow people to suffer? How could God allow, you know, evil to happen to people? I would say, well, Jesus came into this world and, and suffered like no human should ever have to suffer. The worst way that they had at the time was the cross, and Jesus bore that. And Jesus had evil things happen to him that we'll never know. Man, the honor of Jesus, worthy of all glory and all, all worship and honor and praise, crucified. Why did he do that? He endured those things so he could take away this suffering, take away this evil. Some may even ask, how could God allow people to go to hell? How, how dare he allow people to feel that kind of pain? I would say, Jesus had hell come to him right there on the cross so that we wouldn't have to taste it. It's difficult to call into question a God who would allow suffering and pain and even hell when he took it on himself to save us from it. And that leads us to number three, the purpose of the cross. We've seen the path to the cross and the pain of the cross, and now we're looking at the purpose of the cross. We've, we've talked about this um, some already, but why did Jesus do all this? Why would he willingly go? Why would he willingly suffer all this? Verse 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So 37 there, Jesus cried his last. It doesn't tell us what he cried in Mark, but it actually does tell us what he cried in John. 
John 19.30 tells us that the last thing Jesus yelled out was, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. What's finished? The judgment for sin has been paid in full. What I came to this earth to do is finished. I have drank the cup of judgment that you and I deserve or that, that others deserve. It is finished. And then it says in verse 38 there, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This, this is big. Again, this would have probably scared people and say, make them say, oh no, what did we do? But that is not the point of the tearing of the curtain. This curtain is what separated the holy of holies, the holiest place of the temple from the rest of the world. And no one could enter into the holy of holies uh, on punishment of death. They, they would literally die other than the high priest could go in on the day of atonement once a year to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people of Israel. And now, Jesus, because of his death, because of taking that judgment, that curtain is torn open. What's that saying? What that is, is God saying, there is no more need for sacrifice, and there is no more need for this veil. Because of what Jesus has done, you can now come to me. You can come to me through the blood of Jesus, through what he has done. You can have access to the God of the universe, holy, righteous, just, and sinners like us now have access to him. That's what's going on here. God's saying, come to me. I, I know your sins. I know your sorrows. I know your troubles. I know your habits. I know your addictions. I know all the bad things you've done and how many times you said you wouldn't, but you did it again. I know about those things, but you have access to me because of what Jesus has done. You trust in his finished work, and you can come to me. That's what it's talking about there. It is finished, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus was crucified so that we would have access to God. He was found guilty so that we could be found righteous before God. He was condemned by, by man so that God would not condemn us. And God's condemnation for our sins was poured out on Jesus so that we would never taste it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. No condemnation. Why? Because Jesus already took that condemnation. It's not that we're not condemnable. It's that Jesus paid for that condemnation. We have to see here, the purpose of the cross was, was to offer this forgiveness, to, to display God's love to sinners. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But... God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The path to the cross. Yes, people crucified him, but Jesus gave up his own life. He chose to go. God the Father sent him, and he chose to go. 
It was not an easy payment. It was not an easy death. We saw the pain, the physical pain, the emotional pain, and most importantly, the spiritual pain of taking the wrath of God. Then we see the purpose there, that God could give forgiveness and love to undeserving sinners like you and me. And we can trust him by faith. As we uh, come to our communion table reserved for believers who are walking in that faith in Jesus, I want to ask you to reflect with me. Have you seen this incredible magnitude of love? When you hear that, uh, what, what Jesus has done for you, do you feel loved in an unimaginable way? Look at what God did for you, a sinner, a rebel against him. There's love there. If you don't see that love of God, you won't want God. You won't want to spend eternity with him. But the more you see it, the more you will want him, the more you'll want to know him, the more you'll want to serve him, the more you'll long for eternity with that God of love who will be able to pour it out on you fully for eternity. If you've never seen that love, you don't understand salvation. But if you see it today, you can say, God, I see your love for me, a sinner, and I trust in Jesus' work. And that, that is salvation. I turn from my sin. I see your love for me. I trust in Jesus by faith. And I would also say, have you thought about how this, this incredible, sacrificial love that we see from Jesus on the cross should affect our everyday lives and interaction with others? We've got this picture of Jesus on the cross, all that he did for us. And then we, we read verses like, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The cross is the power for husbands to love their wives. We don't do it in this, this I, I love you when it's easy type of way. It's this, the same way Jesus gave himself up for us. That's how we love. We can do that when we see his love. Philippians 2, 2 through 8. You'll know these verses, but I want you to see it as compared to the cross. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Wow, that's difficult. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, that's Christmas, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Easter. The power to love one another, to to, to count others more significant than yourself, is by seeing the love of God, the love of Christ Jesus right there on the cross. Colossians 3.13, we just got out of, you know, our series on forgiveness. Colossians 3.13, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. When you see the love and forgiveness of God, you'll be able to to, to forgive the worst of offenses against you. (laughs) What have you done to me? Jesus, God the Son, had to die for me in order to forgive me. Of course I can forgive you. 
That's the power of seeing this love. It's the power of salvation. It's the power of growth and, and sanctification. Jesus died that we could have our, our, our futile, vain, pointless lives serving ourselves put to death. Jesus died so that old man could be put to death. We don't have to waste our lives seeking joy in places that will never satisfy us. We can seek it in Jesus because he died on that cross. We have a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray.